thing. mentioned last week, uh, or was it last week, or I don't know when it was, um, the combination of, of COVID and lockdown and, and Facebook Live, uh, Zoom, all that stuff, has really provided quite a rich, rich opportunity for us to, to ask ourselves again, what, what uh, are the essential ingredients of church? Why, why do we do this thing every Sunday? Um, and it's a question I actually think about quite a lot every week and think it's a strange question in that way but I, I I think at times there is like my upbringing and the central role that, that the church has played in my life at least um, and yeah now even even further back through through the generations of, of ancestors who have been caught up in this thing called church uh, I agree with what Lloyd said I think that the church is the hope for the world that really it, it, I really do believe that um but I also don't want to be don't want to be gotten wrong in the sense that I'm saying that I'm uh, uncritical um, uh, an uncritical viewer of the church. In some ways, uh, the truth is that the church causes me more frustration than than anything else in the world as well. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I I think, and I'm not talking about you know I'm not talking about this church in particular. I'm just talking about the church. You know, like I'm sure we all feel that you know that we miss the church quickly that it's called to be and so often it seems quite powerless in the face of the problems of this world um, so often it, it even seems at times to be a contributor to some of the problems of this world so yeah uh, so my hope is my hope in the church my hope that the church is the as Lloyd said the only show in town um, is deeply founded but it's not founded in in any sense of optimism um, because optimism is very different to hope. Hope is, um, yeah, hope is, what was I saying? Yeah, my hope, my hope for the church is almost never rooted in the things that I see, um, which would be an example of, of optimism, because optimism is about looking at the facts that lie in front of us and inferring what the best case scenario is from X, Y, and Z. But hope is, uh, by definition, cuts against the grain of what, of what we're seeing, oftentimes. It isn't wishful thinking either. It's, it's confidence. Hope is confidence in the end result, uh, that the end result is already won, no matter the state of play. So that's what keeps me grounded in hope, that the church is the hope for the world. Um, yeah. Or as the Eastern Orthodox Church and possibly even the Roman Catholics say, the church is the ark of salvation, which might, you know, as in like Noah's Ark, um, it's the it's the it's the only show in town. It's the only boat that's floating on the sea. It's it's the it's the only way that we can enter into salvation, and that might sort of raise some eyebrows internally amongst the Protestants in the room, because um, it's like surely uh, you know we've hashed that uh, that problem out. Um, uh, aren't, aren't we elevating the role of the church a little bit too highly to say that it's essential for for salvation? Um, you know, 
what was Martin Luther say? I haven't seen it in the age bracket. And, uh, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure if, if uh, yeah, if, if Martin Luther was around today and someone were to ask him, um, do you think you can be a Christian without being part of a church? He would say, nein, <laughs> um, because he was German. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think perhaps people today might not be so emphatic in their answer. Can you be a Christian without being part of a church? Oh, maybe, I don't know. I, I know a few. Um, yeah, so I'm with Martin Luther and the Eastern Orthodox and all of those great traditions. I think that, that the church is essential for our salvation, and I'll explain that. Um, but the only way I can really explain why is by explaining what the church actually is, which, as, as Becky said, is a little difficult to try and do in the sermon or two and a half sermons uh, it's a big and complex topic um, and it's even made much more complex by the fact that we're living in a particular time in history uh, I would say an unprecedented time in history where uh, the significance of the church has never been belittled as low as it is today and the um, value for institutions in general has never been as low as it is today. Uh, we are pioneers in this, in, in this culture of ours of being anti-institutional. Um, and that makes it really hard to talk about church because the church is an institution. Uh, and yeah, institutions like churches are almost inherently dial up this thing in our minds of this uh, oppressive um, structure that's a hindrance to our expression of individuality and authenticity. Um, and uh, the wisdom of the Simpsons always prevails. Uh, <laughs> they explain the problem with institutions quite well in this little clip. uniformity of rules and 
such things and yeah, uh, inherently um, create, they're going to stifle us. You know, it's all about throwing off the shackles, you know, and, and then we'll be free. Um, so that's the claim of our culture. The problem with institutions is that they destroy authenticity and individuality. And that's a problem because autonomy is the key to human flourishing. Um, that's the claim of our culture, I'd say. And in the context of evangelicalism, it's perhaps even slightly weirder and worse. <laughs> Uh, taken to the extreme where institutional religion itself is commonly viewed as a uh, polar opposite to what Jesus preached. It's actually seen as the problem that Jesus uh, has overcome. Um, and, you know, in some ways that's true, but there's a little bit of nuance into it, into it which is often missed. Uh, hence those sort of common sayings, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious, or you know, I'm a Christ follower, I'm not a Christian. Um, you know, this kind of distancing ourselves from the church or from structures of church as a way of trying to strike out into some sort of authenticity that really is going with the flow of our culture when we do that. And I, yeah, I, I hesitate, but I, I found this press release, probably can't read it, but it's basically the other day from a church who I've blanked out um, and not from a New Zealand church and no one we know, but talking about their brand positioning, re-strategies, um, yeah, debuting a new look and brand positioning that will aim to differentiate itself among organizations using the same name. This church is going to function as a spiritual outfitter to inspire, equip, and guide them on their faith journey. Ah, to me, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's I just shudder when I read stuff like that because it's all about the church picking up the language and the tools and the the speak of management, the speak of this kind of competitive, consumeristic expression of what it means to be church, which is like coming back to that thing of authenticity is like having to be constantly reinvented, um, constantly having to differentiate ourselves against others and against other churches. It's this deinstitutionalized environment has has led to uh, this emphasis on private expressions of Christianity, and that's been a disaster for the world. And it's not led to human flourishing by and large, but to a sort of chaotic marketplace of churches. And it's yeah. So, so I think back to our our situation. I think COVID's kind of brought us to an interesting crossroads as a church, both as a local church and as a church in New Zealand and a, a global church perhaps, um, or maybe it's just a Western thing, but uh, it's given us this crossroads moment where, where I see one path that's presented before us is to return to almost a deeper entrenchment of this phenomena of a privatized faith, where our identity and our way of being is tacitly shaped by the language of consumerism. And that is sort of the kind of church that's all about being comfortable, um, or yeah, anyway, we know what it is. Um, the the other the other path I think that we are that I'm I think is emerging before us is is a reconnection with the value of tradition and the institution of church um, as something we we really give ourselves to, rather than something that we draw things out of. Something that we really give ourselves to. 
So I think that this is the crossroads that we're standing at, at the out, at the other side, or we're not at the other side of COVID, but you know, as we're coming to an awareness of what does it actually mean to be church, this is where we are standing. I think, um, and I think so. With with the time I have remaining, um, I just would like to talk a little bit about <coughs> some ways that we can help to kind of shift our thinking away from thinking about the church as a commodity. Uh, and to think about some of the images that that we find in the New Testament of what the church is, which I hope will help to, you know, the more we do this, the more it kind of breaks the spell of consumerism that sort of hangs over us. So in the Old Testament, there's a, perhaps it's familiar to all of us, but the narrative of Scripture, you know, way big picture, presents, uh, shows, Formation, disfigurement, and reformation. Um, the, the Garden of Eden story is a microcosm of this process of God forming, things being broken, and then God re- restoring things. Um, and so in his greater, this great salvation purpose is worked out through history, like Bo was saying. You know, this gospel is rooted in the hakatapa of, of who we are and of our story. Um, God responds to this problem of sin by calling Abraham to bless the world through him and his family, which is being remade according to the likeness. So out of the whole world, God calls one man and his family, Abraham. So in this diagram, it's like funnels down to this one pinch point. Um, And then out of that, there is the creation of one people, which is Abraham's family becomes Israel. And, uh, And they are called to these specific things. God calls Abraham to and says, you know, he promises Abraham that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And he, and then later on in Exodus, God speaks to Moses and says, you will, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So right in the heart of, of the Old Testament picture of God is this picture of a God who wants to bless, a God who wants to reach out to the world. And this is how he's chosen to do it. He's chosen to form and fulfill his purposes and his mission and his calling, which is this one family. And then the the, the rest of the picture is kind of that um, is that the world would come in, you know, that that the world would see Israel, this attractive this attractive um, nation of king uh, of of priests, and would want to be drawn into it. Um, but as we know from the Old Testament, the people really rejected God's vision and. Um, were exiled, and and so uh, in exile, the prophets began to speak of this day when things would be restored, um, and people, people like Isaiah, uh, in particular, saw an image of uh, Mount Zion. Uh, 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 he says, "In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains." It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. So Isaiah is seeing Mount Zion, this little hill in Jerusalem, as being made into the mountain of God. And it, and it says, uh, well, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, it will, be the, the, it will be established as the highest of the mountains. So basically, um, God's, God's vision for for the people of, of God in, in, in the Old Testament was to be this attraction of like 
and there was this hope that all of this would flow into that. And then in the in the New Testament, um, we see Jesus comes and re-envisages this kingdom of God uh, as one where Gentiles and social outcasts are welcomed in. And at the time, you know, people didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Even his closest disciples were really baffled for most of the time about why he was doing what he was doing. They didn't really understand it. And it wasn't really until after Pentecost uh, that the disciples began to grasp the significance of what was really going on. It's almost like they, ha- they began to see that this diagram that they had in their heads about how salvation is supposed to work was, was changing because of Jesus. Um, and Paul, yeah, Paul puts it most eloquently saying, you know, in Christ Jesus, you are all called children of God through faith. So all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. And because of that, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so this this is actually in this in this diagram behind me. Um, this reformation of a new people, people of God. And in this image of a people of God, there are um, that you know it's at, it's at the heart of it is breaking down of ethnic boundaries, uh, which were you know, and and that became a fundamental practice of the early church. The logic followed basically that since God's spirit was being poured out on these Gentiles, that uh, that that the boundaries of this community of God was were massively expanding, um, and yeah. So th- and then the church had this inherent theological pressure or mandate to reject any forms of of ethnic or gender or other kinds of social hierarchy. And so that's the vision of what the church is. It's to be a place that undoes all of those kinds of hierarchies and undoes all of those kinds of ways of keeping people out and of dividing people out. And that's why, the you know, throughout the New Testament, like say in letters like Philemon, you have Paul writing a letter to a slave owner saying, um, I have your slave who's run away and I'm sending him back to you, not as a slave, but as a brother, because, because you and him are brothers now. He's no longer this, this sort of master-slave relationship doesn't fit with the myth vision of the kingdom of God and doesn't fit with the myth vision of what the church is. So the New Testament is a story of this this group working out what this means. And obviously, the church, as we know, has sort of often failed to live up to to this this way of life and has often sort of fallen back into the patterns of a world, whether it be like racism or nationalism or any of the other isms. Um, but the, the fundamental vision of the church in the Bible is for a unified people who are doing this ministry of reconciliation and announcing to the world that they can too be adopted into a family of God. That's what it means to be church, according to the Bible. Not to kind of, to pick up on another phrase that Lloyd used last week, uh, the church's main task is to be gospeling in the world, to be good news, good newsing um, in the world. Uh, and if we're not and I mean we, if we're not uh, being good news in the world, then we're not really, we're not really being the church. So, and we're not flowing with this directory of calls. That's all right. We, we can always get back on track. So, 
some good ways of getting our head around what gospeling as a church might look like is to look at some of the metaphors of church in the in the Bible. And there's actually there's actually stacks, but um, but I thought I'd just look at three. So the first one is the church in the New Testament is seen a bit as a bit like a family. Uh, it's perhaps the most significant metaphor in the New Testament. Um, it's the New Testament writers are constantly drawing on the language of family to explain what this community is supposed to feel like and function like. So they, they call each other brother and sister a lot. Um, Jesus talked about entering the kingdom of God uh, by a new birth um, and held out the hope that we would become children of God. Paul himself claimed that he was once again in childbirth or you know in child pain with the Galatian Christians, and told Paul told the Corinthians, you know, you have many many teachers, but you only have you know you only have one spiritual father, and he's talking about his son. So again, the ways the New Testament writers tried to help the community to understand it was that we are a family, um, and that's. Uh, you know, I think we often use the language of family, and it's often used in a kind of warm, fuzzy sense, you know, like. But, but it's helpful to actually look at what, um, wh- what family meant in the ancient world, because it was a little bit different to our very uh, extended kinship networks. There's this interesting story that comes from the early church about a um, a prominent actor, like a theatre actor called. Actually, he doesn't have a name, but we'll call him Marcus. Uh, and he he had been converted to Christianity, and he joined this small church. This is a this is a true story. It's kind of pieced together by various letters between different churches. He he joined this church in a small town out of Carthage in North Africa called Sina, and the church was overseen by a man called Eucratius, I think. Anyway, the situation was Marcus's job had raised this moral dilemma within the church and within himself. Because at that time, theatre performances were typically kind of uh, dedicated to pagan gods and goddesses, and they, they kind of often were incorporated into larger religious festivals and, and pagan kind of rituals and stuff like that. Uh, and so the church, was, uh, the church was against them, basically. Or the, the church saw them as, as immoral. So Eucrates decided to write to his friend Cyprian, who was a pastor in Carthage, and he asked him for his advice about what to do with this guy, Marcus. Um, because he wanted to solve this dilemma where uh, this new Christian had trained all of his life to be an actor, and then he becomes a Christian, and the church is saying, you can't do that anymore. Um, so what's he going to do? Uh, Basically, he was being forced to choose between gainful employment and adhering to the standards of the church. And Cyprian wrote back to, to Eucratius, and, and this is what he said about whether they should permit this actor to, to keep up the trade. He said, It's not in keeping with the reverence due to the majesty of God and with the observance of the gospel teachings for the honor and respect of the church to be polluted by contamination once so degraded and so scandalous. So effectively, Cyprian said, no, he can't, he can't keep doing it. Um, he can't keep doing it and be part of the church, uh, which is, yeah, pretty 
it grates against our modern sensibilities, and we think, gosh, that's crazy. Um, because we tend to, uh, I think, prioritize our needs um, and goals over the viability uh, or our connection to any group to which we belong. But luckily, the story goes on. It's not quite as, uh, as nasty as that. Um, so a, a writer, Dave Solomon, describes it and says, as Cyprian's comments clearly demonstrate, the intense emphasis on personal holiness that characterized the North African church had a beautiful complement, concern for those whose livelihoods might be adversely affected by assenting to the church's demanding moral standards. In short, Cyprian tells Pastor Euphrates that the church should provide Hermarchus's material needs. He quotes Cyprian saying, his needs can be alleviated along with those of others who are supported by the provisions of the church. Accordingly, you should do your utmost to call them away from this depraved and shameful profession to the way of innocence and to the hope of his true life. Let them be sustained with the nourishment provided by the church. More swearing to be sure, but salutary. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if that's not enough, basically Cyprian then says, look, if you guys can't afford to do that, we'll do it. We'll look after it. So the early church wasn't just saying, live up to our standards. They were saying that there are standards, uh, the gospel imposes uh, standards or ethics on us. And and those aren't negotiable based on what you, uh, what your preferences are. But we're not going to, say, leave you in the cold there. We're going to support you into, into becoming mature in Christ. Um, so anyway, a long time ago, but it gives us, that perhaps like helps uh, sharpen up some of those fuzzy thoughts we might have about what family is, because that's like pretty hard stuff, right? That's the kind of family that's like, well, family looks after each other and family just, you know, demands on each other. Um, and that's, you know, that's actually how a lot of families work in the world today. It's not, not so much in New Zealand, but as soon as you get out of New Zealand into the global, you know, majority world, that's actually how a lot of families work. Anyway, that's one image of, of the church. Maybe a little bit frightening, but there you go. Um, yeah, uh, the, other, the other image, I suppose, which is brought up in, in that one, oh, there's Cyprian. He was North African, so a blue black, which is pretty cool. Um, the church is a bit like a temple. So from the opening pages of the Bible, there's this invitation to understand all of creation as God's sacred space. Every part of the cosmos reflects this great artist who made it all. And in the creation account, when God ceases from his work, he doesn't do it because he's tired. He's not like, whew, that was exhausting. I need a break. He does it because he's finished, you know? And, and he, like, he takes up residence in his creation as a triumphant uh, king. And, and the whole of creation is his temple. And, and Eden then is represented as this meeting place between heaven and earth, this place where God rests and his presence dwells on earth and people are, can come into his presence. Um, but as we know, human rebellion leads to exile and the remainder of the Bible presence, the presence of God on earth. Um, and so the Israelites build temples, which become these sacred spaces within their societies, and these temples are destroyed by various armies. 
so it goes, one of the most scandalous things that um, Jesus taught was that in some mysterious way, he was the temple. He, he pointed to himself and said, I am this sacred space. I am this mobile temple moving around. And in me is the forgiveness of sins. You know, you don't have to go to the temple because I'll just say your sins are forgiven. Because he has the power to do that because he is this living temple. Um, and that got him in lots of trouble, as we know. Uh, and bef- you know, before he was crucified, Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And, and the, the later church reflecting on that realized that he wasn't just talking about his body, but he was actually talking about um, all who are in Christ are in the temple of God. And that's why Peter um, called, called these, these Jesus people, just like us, uh, living stones who are built up as a spiritual temple, as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus the Messiah. Um, the early church understood this, like urban vineyards, as a people built up as a spiritual holy temple. And we uh, have this remarkable calling on our lives. And I think sometimes it's easy to overlook it that we, this church, has this has this calling on us to be the temple of God, to be a place where people's um, guilt is is taken away, where where God's presence is is mediated, where His Holy Spirit is present, where where people can come into this space or come into a connection with us and encounter God. Um, The city is some uh, sorry. The church is sometimes represented in the New Testament as a city or as a citizenry. Um, it's maybe not as prominent as as other metaphors. Who knows? We've got to read those. Um, but it's this idea, I think, that is particularly helpful for us today or in times of polarization and culture and politics, um, where we see Christians getting swept into these kind of yeah, these polarizing conversations. Paul, Paul reminded the Philippians not to be too caught up in, in the cares of the culture around them because they belonged and they had an entirely different allegiance to a different ruler who was promising to return again. As he said, you know, our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven. And similarly, as this quote says, you know, Peter reminded us then to their identity as as foreigners, as aliens, as exiles. And I think that's something perhaps that could be quite helpful for us. Again, you know, we have these images of family, um, we have an image of temple, and we have an image of, of people, a citizenry, that's living in the city as exiles, as aliens, as strangers. Um, that said, neither Paul nor Peter or any of the New Testament writers, for that matter, um, ever suggested that the church should retreat from politics. Or, or not be engaged in the world of Roman society. Indeed, the advice that Peter gives the church is, is basically an example of how to live in the world but not of it. He says, you know, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor 
Republicans governors, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's quite amazing what this, this guy's saying. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So Papa will speak to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So Peter's not saying, you know, we are called to live these quietistic lives and retreat away and not engage in society. He's saying, um, you are exiled in this Roman culture. But, but, live, you know, but live good lives. Live the kind of lives that people cannot fault you because of it. Live the kinds of lives where, you, where people say, I don't understand how you don't get involved in these kinds of um, battles that we're involved in, but somehow... Know they just seem to wash over you. I think that's the image of what it means to be, yeah, to be um, yeah, like an like an illegal immigrant almost. You know, like in, in the American sense, you're you're creating society in that way. So here, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Um, I just think it's a helpful one. You know, like in an election year, I think I think that we. Um, yeah, we can sometimes get kind of swept up into things that aren't actually us. Um, yeah, and, and we should remember that we only have allegiance to one Lord, you know. We don't have allegiance to the National Party. We don't have allegiance to the Labour Party. We don't have allegiance to any of these um, rulers and, and authorities in this world. And neither are we trying to tear them down. Neither are we trying to destroy them. Neither are we retreating from them. But we are building, you know, we are existing as kingdom people in the midst of this and not, and you know, working hard to not get tangled up in it. And I think, you know, uh, diagram, <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy. I mean, I'm sure, you know, even in this room, we could all locate ourselves somewhere on, you know, I'm on the Christian left, or on the Christian right. Um, you know, uh, I mean, in this diagram, it's like the Christian left tries to be relevant to politics and culture. Um, and the Christian right defends against politics and culture. Both use state power. Um, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting one. There's that third position, which is the dissenters, um, and it's interesting that you know our church actually has this in, in a way on its roots and its Quaker roots. We're, we were dissenters. We were um, persecuted by both Protestants and Catholics, um, and who reject state power, who reject um, you know taking the levers of power in society. They actually emphasise purity from um, culture, and they are committed to social justice and preserving historic values so they somehow can like bring in different aspects of the conservative liberal whatever you know some of these labels are a bit slippery anyway i just thought that was an interesting one for us to to think about you know because i'm sure like within this room there'll be people who will find themselves on one side or the other but maybe it's just a question of like yeah re-examining where our allegiance is so to conclude uh Eden vineyard is a real church that is something that really helps me to to say, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're not just an upstart, you know, like we actually belong, you know, we actually are part of a long tradition, and we this, you know, like when we read the New Testament and we see all these metaphors, um, these are given to specific communities, you know, like the church in Ephesus, the church in Galatia, the church in Philippi, but it's also given to the whole church, and it's also given to this church. So we are inheritors of all of these metaphors. We're inheritors of all of these promises. 
the church is the hospital of the world. It's the only thing in town. It's the only thing that is transcendent. Um, it's the only thing that belongs to a kingdom which is on its way. Um, so our job is to continually keep ourselves in the in the desert that is the church to be uh, for that to be the the well that we're drinking from rather than the the other way. Um, and yeah, we yeah, like I say, we are we're part of this one holy apostolic church. And I think we stand at the crossroads. We we do like that picture of the sheep, you know, maybe not the most flattering. Another image of the church is a flock, you know, we are the flock and Jesus is the good shepherd. So we stand at the at the crossroads at the moment, I think, of which way do we want to go with this church? How do we want to um, commit ourselves to the institution of, of the church? Or do we want to continue to, I don't know, go with the flow of culture and do what feels good? That we that we can rediscover the importance of what it means to actually buy in together, to actually buy in and to be the church. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll just why don't we just pray? I'll just and why don't we stand um, and and just pray? I'll, I'll lead us in prayer and hopefully.